0: what on earth is clam mayhem i'm glad you asked One day, Ty Wolf-Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth. It came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for-profit companies get involved.
1: In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it.
0: Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that.
1: Thus, climate mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob.
0: Mayhem on, Ty.
1: Dan Green. He's the SVP of North American Sales and Impossible Foods, possibly the Earth's most scrumptious plant-based meat company. And they have science and optimization at its core, not just great food. But their mission is simple, eliminate the need to make food from animals. And Dan's had an impressive career that didn't start in tech, nor sales. He actually started as an aviator for the U.S. Navy. Aside from having over 1,500 hours of flight time in places like Iraq, Dan also spent 12 years managing the operations, 400 aviators, 40 aircraft, and tens of millions of dollars in annual budget. Since then, he's worked at Twitter, Google, but now he's at Impossible Foods, where he gets to lead sales at a company with a mission he truly believes in. Jacob, what'd you take away from this conversation?
0: Impossible is trying to make the impossible possible by making every meat eater an impossible eater. Now, listen, look, they're trying to imitate the kinesthetic experience of eating a juicy burger. For example, They've injected potato starch into their patties to imitate browning, or they've used coconut oil in a creative way. For example, Ty, did you know an Impossible Burger imitates the bloodiness of a patty somehow? You're going to be intrigued to find out. Well,
1: I already am. And so I can't wait. You'll also find out a few other things. Like what does getting winged mean? How does a company go about replacing a staple with an alternative? Not a small problem. And of course, how much does Impossible Foods care about their competition? You might be surprised at the answer. So join us. This is a great conversation. You're going to love it. Stick with us and enjoy.
0: Mayhem on. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd start off with a little bit of your history as a naval aviator. So, do you love or hate the Top Gun number two?
2: That's a kind of a loaded question, I, I think. Um, <laughs> I love or hate Top Gun 2. So I'm going to be an outlier and tell you that I really did not like Top Gun 2. Okay. Um, you probably don't hear that very often. But even if I suspend my, like I, I can totally suspend the sort of like, hey, what they were doing is completely ridiculously unrealistic. Right? I guess I, I don't, hmm. it's, not, hmm. it's not about that at all. Okay. Because um, it was it? totally and completely <laughs> unrealistic. I'd say the thing that, there's two things one that I liked and the, the big thing that I didn't I didn't think it was a very good movie like mm-hmm. I didn't find the characters were interesting I didn't find the story was interesting mm-hmm. I didn't like I didn't fall in love with the characters and the story like I did the original or like I did many other movies mm-hmm. I thought, thought it was like sort of plastic and cheesy and corny and it just didn't have a good story and didn't have good it really very good acting or anything else and Whereas the the original and like you fell in love with the characters, the soundtrack, mm-hmm. the story he was touching, like all that, right? Yeah, and this one oh, didn't do it for me. Now, yeah. that being said, the flying sequences and the you know videography and stuff was outstanding, pretty incredible, yeah,
0: very incredible. Yes. I just saw it last night. I was like, gotta do some homework, you know. I'm gonna watch. Yeah, it's now. good. <laughs> it's that's the homework. It's yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah, I guess yeah. it was the Unreal. It was unrealistic. The this is the mission. You have to fly super low through this enemy territory, just back and forth. And you gotta like escalate to the top of this mountain. And you gotta go down the mission was
1: a little the yeah. Mission was felt pretty a little, a tight, little tight, tired tight too.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but
0: in all fairness, like the sort of mission, even
2: actually the the mission in the first one and the stuff they did, like that wasn't it was unrealistic and it was kind of mm. there was a lot of Hollywood to it but it was like fundamentally not mm. crazy whereas this mission low level ingress to a, a sort of a vertical attack like that is something we train to all the time but okay not realistic that you would you would do it and certainly given all the like the whole scenario that they built up to
0: mm-hmm. it that's of, what I was thinking yeah yeah
2: <laughs> <It was>
0: grandi-
1: <laughs> a little grandiose yeah. yeah a little
2: grandiose Dan what did you fly I flew a similar airplane to what they showed in that movie, actually. I flew the the F-18 Hornet and um the F-18's got basically two fundamentally different versions, but uh-huh. similar. What I flew was called the Legacy Hornet. And then what they showed in the movie was the Super Hornet, which is a slightly mm. larger and different version. Um, you know, mm. still kind of the same airplane. And I flew that a little bit as well, but but all my training and deployments were in what's was the legacy hornet at the time. The super hornet was new.
0: Mm-hmm. The evolution of, of that plane.
2: Yeah, they they say that the Super Hornet is sort of what they almost originally wanted to get out of the original Hornet, in the sense that it has um, it has the range and some of the weapons capability that they wanted the original.
0: Okay, okay, very interesting. Ooh, on the veteran podcast that you were on, there was a lot of lingo that went around. You mentioned just in passing the word "getting winged." What does "getting winged" mean?
2: Oh, so when let's see, it means you, when you're actually given your aviator wings, and it means you've completed. Um, training so you graduate Uh from college or from in my case the naval academy and you get commissioned as a ensign or second lieutenant in the military which is the first rank of any officer grade and then you go through training in fact anything you do whether it's ships or tanks or anything supply chain you're going to spend anywhere from six months to in my case two years going through training for that mm. profession. And at the completion of that tr- basic flight training, well, not basic, but at the completion of a, a certain point of, in your training, before you learn how to fly the plane, you're going to fly in the fleet. So all aviators go through flight school and at the completion of flight school, you get winged and you're officially an mm. aviator. And then you go learn how to fly the specific airplane that you're going to fly in the fleet.
0: Got okay. it. Very interesting. And, and I, I don't know if this, is what it's like in, Naval aviation, but I guess it is what it's like in tech is they interview to find the right fit, but in uh, the military, for example, it actually might be, they accept a lot of people and then they filter out to get the right qualification or someone who's like really dedicated or has the right skills and has that discipline. Do you see it like that too a little bit? Is like, how do you become a, a, a Naval aviator?
2: There is a lot of filtering. I mean, it's not designed specifically to filter. It happens in the process, whatever the process is for any kind of training, you end up filtering, but it's not, it's not designed to weed people out. I mean, okay. if anything, mm-hmm. if you think about it, ideally they'd have some set of signals that indicate that you're going to be a great aviator or whatever it is, right. Mm-hmm. And they could, they could interview you and, or test for those things and then have a 99% throughput, right. Cause every person who, who fails through, fails out, or washes out, or, or or doesn't complete training is a is a total waste of money and resources. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing could be said for interviewing at a company, and so yeah, I mean, essentially, the Navy. So every year they basically say they look at their whole, you know, the whole organization. And say, look, we're going to need this many aviators and this many sub drivers and this many ship drivers and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And then those positions become available to all the sort of newly commissioned officers at different points throughout the year. In order for you to have your choice, you have to be physically qualified for whatever your choice is. And then it has to be available. And it's conceivable. Mm-hmm. Like at the Naval Academy, the Naval Academy, we graduated 1,000 back when I was there. We, we, we started with 1,400. We graduated a little less than a 1,000. Oh, wow. They ranked you one through a thousand based off of your academic score and your military score over the course of this was three and a half years in. And then they called down number one through 25. You got in line at this, you're in this, you know, one area and you got Mm -hmm. in line and you went into the selection area and you selected your profession. And aviation went out at, say, number 700. If you were ranked lower than Mm -hmm. 700, you weren't going to get an aviation
0: spot, as an example.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: The fourteen hundred to one thousand is extra extra interesting to me because Ty and I both have, have worked or I, I still work on the supply side of marketplaces and I'm always thinking about like for example at assurance, it was a marketplace for insurance agents and insurance shoppers. My role was to get thousands of insurance agents ultimately, right? And that that kind of funnel, that filtering of how many start at the top and then come out the end. Like really, you can put a science to some sort of modeling, right? If you do it X amount of years. And I imagine the military, the Navy can all do some sort of like rough calculations based on, you could say, conversion rates, right? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. They've got tons of data. They've been training pilots or infantry officers or whomever for a long time. And the military is a very large scale training organization. So they, they have whole offices and buildings of people devoted just to training.
1: Wow! yeah, makes sense.
0: Very cool. Dan, what got you interested in climate sustainability space? Or maybe a different way to put it is when did you start thinking about some of the issues that are going on with climate and, and or sustainability?
2: So I think it's maybe a little bit of hardwiring in my personality. We all Mm -hmm. sort of like have different personalities and different interests that, you know, get more or less hardwired and very, you know, as we're forming into cells in the womb and obviously Mm -hmm. we're influenced by our environments. But for me, Mm -hmm. I always felt a few things sort of innately. One is that I want to be a part of doing something for the greater good. That's always been something... Mm -hmm that I've felt strongly. I think it has something to do with the fact that I tend to feel very, very strongly against unfairness or or wrongness, right? Like mm. people being treated poorly, people being treated mm-hmm. wrong wrongly, people being treated unfairly, that tends to really get me going. Mm-hmm. And if I think about it, like it's not a huge leap to think about like, well, the environment's a good example of that, right? Like we're, we're crashing mm-hmm. our planet and that, just really doesn't sit right with me. and So part of this is sort of innate, I'd say, and it's related to that thought process, but it's also related to wanting to be a part of whatever I can do to help the greater good. And that was what in part drove me into the military. When I got out of the military, I spent- Yeah. I spent years in commercial business one way or the other. But none of those companies, even like Google or Twitter, like it wasn't they were trying to do their thing to make the world a better place, but like they weren't trying to save the planet or the environment. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, and then along comes impossible foods. And I'm like, holy smokes, here's a company that's like not only trying to build a commercially viable business, but the whole objective is to restore balance to our environment, to our planet, Mm. right? Save the planet for humans. And that doesn't come along very often.
1: Right, right. How long have you been at Impossible Foods now? A little over three years. A little over three years. How long has Impossible been around? About 10. About 10 years. Oh, wow. A little bit over. So, yeah, tell us a little more about that story of you meeting Impossible and and getting to join and getting to know these guys and seeing that it was a fit.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So coming from the tech industry here in the Mm -hmm. Valley, it's pretty common to engage with venture capital firms and their talent teams and as they look mm-hmm. to fill other positions. And I had I had spent a long time at Google, then I spent a long time at Twitter. Then I jumped into this sort of startup ecosystem, which is a mm. crazy place. Um, and <laughs> I went to a very, very early stage tech company, did that for about a year and a half and learned a lot, but also learned that's probably not the right spot for me. What's a better spot is sort of the mid to, to later stage growth startups. Mm. Right where, mm-hmm. where I can get involved and help grow and scale the organization and so I had left that early stage startup and was sort of thinking about my next opportunity Coastal ventures reached out and said, hey, are you interested in impossible foods? I had tried impossible foods in a restaurant I thought it was fantastic and mm-hmm. my initial response was like essentially that like wow, fantastic product but I, I know nothing about sort of selling food or helping to manage a food company and the role mm-hmm. was actually, the role was actually for what eventually became my boss's job, which was the essentially the president role, or huh. basically leading supply and demand. And so I said, I don't think I'm, I don't think I have the experience for that, but I'm always willing to do it, give mm-hmm. it a shot. So they're like, yeah, no, they're, they're looking for people like you. So I spent a lot of time interviewing with the CFO at the time, David Lee, and Pat Brown, the CEO, and then a whole bunch of other folks that were here. And really fell in love with the idea. The mission was holy smokes, this is awesome. It's mm. incredibly mission-driven with a very important mission. I could go back into being part of like contributing to the greater good, but also you know be a part of a commercially viable business. So that's really a fascinating combination. Uh, food is incredibly fun, right? Like it's it's <laughs> actually really fun to talk about cheeseburgers, <laughs> chicken nuggets all the time. And it's fun marketing too. Yeah, it's fun, nice. marketing. and so I was like, I, I really fell in love with it, and. But in that process, you know, I was really clear with Pat and David at the time, like, guys, you can find somebody like I haven't I haven't even been a part of a company making a physical good before. Like half the stuff Mm -hmm. you want me to do, I know how to do. The other half, I would just, you know, I'd figure it out and I'm Mm -hmm. more than willing to do it. I'm I'm here for it. But you also could find somebody with more horsepower. And they agreed. And so they hired my boss, uh, Dennis Woodside, who just Mm -hmm. left. A couple of weeks ago. And Dennis had actually more experience and he had he was the CEO of Motorola for a little while. So he'd been a part of a company making a physical good. He came on board and I was still consulting and helping different companies. And six months later, he gave me a call and said, Hey, I heard that you were interviewing for my job. Why don't you come lead sales? And that's a much better fit for where I'm at right now, my experiences. And that's how it happened.
1: Nice. And so today, what is your
2: role? So I lead sales in, in in North America, which is essentially ninety five percent of our business, and Canada and the U.S. And then we've got a few international markets that we've also um, developed some teams and and sell into as well.
1: So Impossible's really made you know the news and their name in in the last few years, but it's obviously been around longer than that. Building that, and when you look at on their website, they're talking a little bit about trying to get everybody to eat an Impossible burger. Who is your customer today? How are you getting that out there? I mean, you guys have gone about it some unique ways. And as the sales guy, I'm sure you're having fun talking to different people and getting it into their hands. Who are your ultimate customers right now and who are you going after?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, our ultimate customer would be anybody, anybody who eats meat or doesn't eat mm. meat. Right? Okay. Um, but we, we're going after the meat eaters. Pat's vision for this company was brilliant. So, you know, he took time off to figure out what he wanted to do in the sort of third trimester of his life. And this was probably. 12 13 years ago and he he thought okay Mm. what are the biggest problems facing society and how can i be a part of helping that solving for those problems and he happened upon climate change and then he happened upon the fact that animal food production is certainly the single biggest impact on climate Mm. and all these interesting ways more than transportation more than transportation yeah okay and Mm. so um uh, it comes down to land use which we can get into but but anyway the um Point is, is that he said, okay, well, it's it's animals and it's mostly cows and, and producing cows and eating cows are mm. killing us. We got veggie burgers. Why don't they work? And well, it turns out that because well, veggie burgers like aren't as nearly as good as a burger. Burgers mm. delicious. It's freaking delicious. Mm-hmm. People love it. And he's like, well, okay, then there's no reason that we have to use a cow to make a burger. It's not like nature designed cows to make burgers for us. Then it's a, it's designed to be a cow. And and his <laughs> scientific mind looked at it and said, we can reverse engineer the cow, take it out mm-hmm. of the picture and go from plants to burger instead of plants to cow to burger. Brilliant. And then if we do that and do it really, really well, then we'll create a veggie burger essentially so good that the market demand will make the change. We don't have to convince mm-hmm. anyone. Just make it as good or better than the cow. And the people's stomachs and mouths will take care of the rest. And it's brilliant. And it and it's it 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 is beginning to work and it will work. There's no fundamental reason that you have to get um, meat from a cow or from a pig or from a chicken. You don't have to. I think, you know, Tesla's proven that you you actually can have a high performance, decent range on a vehicle and, and have it be battery powered. And I think we've proven that you can make ground meat from plants and have it taste so good that you don't miss anything. From the animal and we're just beginning i mean we are just beginning and so i think it's uh i think that that premise really works what was the question i went off track
1: no no, no you didn't that that, that was a, a great a great intro into it i was thinking also oh, i know what yeah, you yeah. kind of teed up go ahead go ahead then what, no, no, what no, you no, i think you
2: were asking like how do we get to this point and selling the product sure. to the, customer. yeah. the customers yeah 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 but anyway the whole point being that our customer is Our customer, our consumer, our desired consumer is the meat eater. And the 90 plus percent of our consumers are meat eaters.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. And so that's what I was kind of looking at. Your strategy, and I would argue your sales strategy was, well, based on what you just said, you've got to get people to taste this. So what's your strategy there to get them to taste it first, to be able to say what you just said, which is this thing tastes so dang good. It, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. In fact, I might prefer I prefer this
2: right. Well, it happens It happens in a lot of different ways because people buy meat and buy food all over the place. You know, they buy them they they eat meat in restaurants or or food in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. they buy it at the grocery store. they buy it at the convenience store. they buy it at the drugstore. Mm-hmm. They buy it at the, the sports arena, the hospital, Interesting. The colleges and universities, yeah. all over the place. So, you want to find ways of getting to the right customers and consumers in all these different places. The early version of our product was very different than the version we have today. The version we have today goes back to about three and a half years ago. The version before that was a, a different formulation and it didn't perform nearly. It tasted really good if it was done right, but like your average person with that. It wouldn't work in retail because your average person would kind of mess it up and it wouldn't taste good. Uh-oh. So we started, yeah. the original version, we started going after celebrity chefs and gastropubs and the likes because we wanted to get that kind of vindication, right? Like, and, and if they're yeah. sorry, it's got to be good. And, and then also that kind of expertise in preparing it. And that worked really, really well. And we got into a couple thousand restaurants over the first couple of years. And then in the beginning of 2019, we launched this newer version of our product that's ready really for prime time. And that's when we hit an inflection point and began to really scale the business and to mainstream points of distribution. We we signed Burger King and and, and Starbucks, and then we also Uh launched our product in grocery and retail. So now we're getting people to try our products, whether it's walking into a Burger King and getting a Whopper for a couple of bucks, or it's walking down the grocery aisle and either sampling it, because some stores are now sampling again, or better yet, buying a two-pack patty and trying it at home. So we're kind of hitting people all over the place to try and get them to sample it.
1: Super interesting. And I think, yeah, that's the creative sales strategy of get it into people's, get them to taste it, right? And and taste it. And they're going to do it if if they go with somebody they trust, like a chef at a restaurant. I think that's super unique. When I think about the Burger King, one of the questions we were talking about was this idea of the sustainability, right? The founders started with this idea of helping to save the planet, but I think people think of veggie patties for different reasons, right? Maybe health, maybe other reasons. So when you think about a Burger King and the sustainability message and this idea of like, we're trying to shift behavior of getting people to try this, do you care, I guess, about the sustainability message at that point, or is it just enough to get it into their mouths? And where do you go from there? Like I go at Burger King. Am I just trying to to experiment? How do I get that message that this is either for my health or for sustainability?
2: Yeah. So I I think if you go back to look at our messaging and our and and our focus over the last several years, because you know the company's been around for ten plus years, we've only been commercializing the product for about five, going on six years. And if you look at the history of that, most of our messaging is around sustainability. Right. Okay. And it turns out, frankly. I don't think people make decisions based off. I mean, half this country doesn't even believe in global warming. Right. Uh, Right. On the numbers, but like, right. Tens of millions. true. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't think, and and even the people that do believe in it, like it's like people tend not to make changes until it's like in their
0: face. Right. Mm, It's even hard to believe even when you believe it, you don't
2: start filling sandbags until there's a flood coming.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: (laughs) It's like, so your average person chooses plant-based meat because of health. Right, they think it's healthier for them. In fact, it is. If you look at it objectively, it's healthier for them, and they're making the choice because of health. The reason they come back or they don't come back is because of taste. If something tastes bad, sure, majority of people, not everybody, the majority of people are like, "Look, if that doesn't taste really good, I'm not doing it." Now, some people, we yeah. tend to call them vegans and vegetarians, they're going to try it, and if, even if it's not the greatest. They're more, impo- it's more important to them to be vegan or vegetarian and sacrifice a little bit in some cases. Whereas your average meat eater, which is the majority of people, if it doesn't taste good, they're not coming back. And we're fortunate that we've developed products that satisfy people so well that, you know, they go, they choose it because of health and they come back because it tastes really very, very good.
1: Nice.
0: It does. And that's where you really start to good. get
1: that behavior change, right? Of like, it doesn't matter or I prefer this. Yeah. I think that's a big, big, uh, a hill to climb maybe, but it sounds it, like you guys uh, are hitting it.
2: It's really big tie. tie. Like it, it it's not gonna happen overnight, right? It's right, right. It, like so, plant-based dairy that's roughly 20% of the market these days, dairy market, roughly. I think mean, maybe it's 18 mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. that's pretty you go back in time, like that's been around for like 30 years.
1: Forever. And, yeah. Soy milk's been around.
2: it's gonna take yeah. it'll take a while, but um, yeah, I I I think that in my mind, I'm probably less than objective, I suppose, because I work here, but if I just think about certain things, right? It's inevitable that the vast majority of cars are going to be powered by mm. electricity. I mean, it's inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. They'll go a thousand miles mm. on a the charge, they'll recharge from wind, solar, maybe nuclear. And that you know, like if you still want to buy a 67 Camaro, you can, but like the vast mm-hmm. majority of cars are gonna be are gonna be electric. And that that just seems inevitable. And when I look mm-hmm. at plant-based meat, what we've been able to do, and some other companies have been able to do, I just think. It's inevitable that ground meat, at the very least, is going to be plants. Uh, there's yeah. just a to mm-hmm. an
0: it makes me yeah. think about why Why do I eat meat? Why would I? right? And it's as much, I realize ground meat was as much a logical answer as an emotional one. And there is some identity attached to it. I'm a vegetarian now. I'm able to trump that emotional through exactly, I, I'm like your ideal customer. You know, like I came in through health. I'm not leaving because it, it is really tasty and it just gets better and better, right? So I think that's, it's fascinating. I feel like we could do an entire episode just just on that. I guess switching gears just a little bit here. So Pat Brown, he was involved in academia uh, and research for a long time. He was involved in even some research around HIV AIDS, I, I found. But Impossible took the capitalist route. Of this, you know, Pat wasn't an MBA graduate or a business guy. Why do you think Impossible took the more capitalist for-profit route with this?
2: That's a pretty smart guy. Okay. He started out as a pediatrician. He's been a vegetarian for since the 70s. Uh, he eventually got into academia and and all sorts of other sort of related fields. He is, he's brilliant. He was smart enough, even though he's an academic and even though he's a scientist, he was smart enough to understand one of the most powerful forces I think on the planet is the movement of people and the market tends to move people like nothing else. Mm. And so he looked at the situation and he said, and black bean burgers and veggie burgers and all these things have been around for a long time. And, you know, his take was like, they taste pretty good to me, but mm. only 5% of the population's eating them. Right, right. Right. Like, why is that? Yeah. And he realized that like the only way, like you're not going to convince, and they, we've been trying it for a long time and you are not going to convince. I mean, it's hard enough to convince meat eaters to eat our product. Like yeah. you're not mm-hmm. going to convince a meat eater to sacrifice that burger for a black bean burger. No way, no how. Just Jacob and a bunch of his friends, but that's <laughs> it, right? Like, So he, he's smart enough to realize that and figure out that, okay, then we need to create a veggie burger, essentially. That is an all- respects the same as that animal or even better. And and if we can do that, then then market demand will solve this problem. Mm. And he so he's smart enough to realize you've got to create, you know, a, a capital enterprise that harnesses market demand to really solve the problem.
0: Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation.
1: But Before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us.
0: Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to ClimateMayhem.com, where you'll find our contact link. See you soon.